namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Bhutang Tamang Sankang Namasami. Somebody uh, sent me a, a card a couple of days ago uh, asking the question. Um, with respect to the uh, the the war in the, the Ukraine, uh, how do we practice the the four Brahmaviharas: uh, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, uh, equanimity uh, in the face of these uh, terrible events, these uh, tragic uh, situation? And uh, so I thought I would offer a few reflections on on that, uh, that theme uh, this evening. I feel it's a, a very, uh, very good question and very important to consider. Uh, over the years, there have been uh, numbers of occasions where wars have broken out or great crises of these uh, these kinds have happened around the world. Uh, in the, the uh, the invasion of, uh, of Kuwait and then the, uh, uh, the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York City um, and there's many and various uh, wars and uh, in, uh, crises of this kind human conflicts uh, have happened over the years and uh, right now we have this, uh, this particular situation uh, uh, happening and affecting the lives of Many, many people uh, here in in Europe and all, all around the world. We can wonder, and this uh, in the same uh, card that the person wrote to me, the say the question was, um, uh, "What uh, what can we do as a practicing Buddhist? What can we do, or what, you know, what should we do, or what should we not do?" Yeah. How can we most skillfully relate to a, a situation, a tragic situation of conflict uh, of this kind? The, uh, the feelings that arise very, very uh, naturally. I mean, many, quite a number of people here have got uh, family members, people close to them who live in that area. Uh, in Russia, Ajinyana Dasna is in Russia at the moment, also in Hungary, uh, Slovakia, Poland, uh, Romania, yeah. around that uh, that area. Uh, there's uh, numbers of, of us have uh, family members, people who are close to us, people that we know very well, and in the Ukraine also, uh, right in the center of the, the conflict. So the feelings of grief and sadness, feelings of powerlessness or anger, uh, resentment and uh, hatred, negativity, uh, anxiety, uh, very easily, very naturally arise in the in the, the face of these kinds of situations. So we, as so committed Buddhists, Buddhist practitioners, then we can we can easily sort of look to the teachings and. And see, oh, the, well, the, the Buddha's advice is to you know, have loving kindness for all beings. Uh, hatred is never conquered by hatred. Hatred is only ever conquered by love. This is a law, ancient and inexhaustible, as says in the Dhammapada. Or uh, in the Metta Sutta, we, we recite so often here, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Or with the the sharing of blessings, uh, uh, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life, the highest gods and evil and evil forces, 
may they may all beings receive the blessings of my life so these are very beautiful very powerful uh, and very high minded teachings and so uh, i feel it's helpful to consider that when the when we have these kind these principles uh, expounded in the in the dhamma teachings that uh, uh, and this this came up in the, one of the dhamma readings a day or two ago that uh, yeah, it's it's uh, expounding a particular ideal, uh, but it's a direction that we set. It's not uh, something to say to to cling to or to grasp. Um, so you know, I should be uh, having loving kindness to all beings. Those who are perpetrating these uh, this sort of destruction and difficulty, I should I should have as much love. Uh, for them, as I do as I, uh, for other beings, or as I would for my only child, and so the, it's important to consider that the these teachings they point in a direction. They they're uh, say describing a, an ideal attitude, but uh, an ideal is like like a Buddha image. It's a it, it's a uh, kind of a, a fixed model. It's an ideal. But we start from where we are. We we can't start from the ideal. We, we, this Buddha image has been sitting there for twenty years and has never moved. You know, us as human beings, we get aching knees. We have to get up and move. We we have bodies that are alive. So an ideal is like a like a, a, a Buddha image or a, it's a um, a concept, a, a mental construction. But it does set a direction. Like we have the the Buddha images in the highest place, and it does serve as a, as a model. It sets a a, a, a direction. It's an it's a it's a way of uh, encapsulating or describing the qualities of peacefulness, of energy, alertness, serenity. So the Buddha image is at the center of attention, but we each uh, start from where we are. We work with, with the life that we have, these feelings, these bodies, these minds. We start from where we are. We use the ideals, we use these principles to set a direction, but I feel it's most important and most uh, practical and, and uh, realistic and, and effective to be uh, uh, starting from where we are rather than trying to start from from the ideal. So what this means is, is that if we have an ideal like uh, uh, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings. So hate is never conquered by hatred. We might feel like, oh, well, I'm a bad Buddhist because I'm feeling resentment or I'm feeling fear or I'm feeling uh, I'm lost in my own sense of depression or powerlessness. Uh, I, I can't feel that kind of uh, of love or appreciation for for all beings in in a situation like this, and so uh, we t uh, take the ideal and then uh, relate to it from a place of self view, and it turns into a uh, a a way of judging ourselves or feeling self critical or uh, feeling like I'm a bad Buddhist or I'm not getting this right or there's something wrong with me or I shouldn't be this way. So. Uh, uh, I'm not um, uh, reading anybody's mind. I hope I'm not making too many presumptions. But it's it's often this way that we we relate to ideals and principles, and it comes up very often when people ask questions about dhamma practice. So one of the principles, particularly with with loving kindness, that uh, Lumpur Sameda would emphasise over the years, is that uh, rather than than feeling like we're, we're supposed to, to uh, uh, say, like uh, every being, or that when we talk about loving kindness, that we're we're supposed to have a a, um, uh, a, a kind of um, radiant, positive attitude towards every being. He would make a, a couple of points. One is that loving is not the same as liking. Acceptance is not the same as approval. So that when we're talking about uh, a love for all beings, we're not trying to make ourselves like every being or like every situation or like every mind state. We're not being asked to approve of, uh, of every action or every mind state or every being and, and what they do. But uh, acceptance is rather 
that openness of heart that recognizes in this moment it's this way. Uh, whether it's something that's, that's beautiful or ugly, painful or, or pleasant or neutral, then that quality of acceptance is that openness of heart to recognize in this moment it's this way. This, this is the way it is. And so uh, I feel this is a very uh, uh, Im- important principles to, to bring to mind. And these are themes that are, are talked about over and over, but it's easy to forget them. And it's easy for the mind to get lost in anxiety or fear or resentment and aversion or, or those feelings of powerlessness and grief. Uh, when we talk about uh, uh, loving-kindness also, um, another of the aspects that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would, would, um, would emphasize that I found very helpful is rather than trying to climb over your feelings of resentment or irritation or anxiety to get to this, uh, this loving, um, a boundless heart on the other side, uh, to, to have a positive, uh, attitude towards all beings. So that he would emphasize it's a matter, uh, more of a matter of having loving kindness for your own resentment, having loving kindness for your own fear, your own, uh, uh, your own aversion, your own anger, your own, uh, uh, grief or feelings of powerlessness. Again, not that we're trying to make ourselves like feeling powerless or to like feeling angry or resentful or like feeling anxious, but it's uh, uh, that quality of acceptance, that, that loving kindness for the state that has arisen, rather than trying to climb over that to get to a positive place on the other side. Loving kindness is actually for this, this very emotion in this moment, whatever is arising, these feelings of uh, of uh, say uh, lack or powerlessness or, or irritation, hatred, to be able to recognize in this moment, here is the feeling of well, I want to I want to do something but I can't do anything, or I uh, I feel so sad, I feel so grief stricken. Uh, what do I do with this this feeling of grief? So that. Uh, in the, in the practice of loving kindness and, and uh, how we develop the Brahma Viharas, it's to open the heart primarily to what, uh, what is the felt uh, sense of uh, the uh, the experience in this moment. And if there's sadness, the, to recognize this is the feeling of sadness. If there's uh, anger, uh, then this is the feeling of anger. If there's uh, anxiety and worry, uh, the mind fretting and caught up in in uh, feeling st- stressed and anxious, in this moment, this is what a- anxiety feels like. This is the feeling of being stressed. It's like this. It's exactly this way. We're not trying to make ourselves like that or pretend that we're glad that it's this way. Acceptance does not mean approval. Uh, so we're not trying to sugar things over or, or to think pink as... Paul would put it, but rather, in this moment, here it is, it's exactly like this. And we can do this. Uh, it takes quite a bit of mindfulness to, uh, particularly in a very intense and challenging situation, just nature, whether uh, we hear news or we, we uh, people make comments and have opinions and we can easily get stirred up and carried away by the, the things that we hear, the things that we see and, and we get, get talked about. So... Uh, we, uh, uh, because of strong emotions and, and a lot of, uh, of information and, and news and contact around these different kinds of events and the unfolding of things, we can get easily distracted and caught into the, um, the different aspects of it. So it takes quite a bit of mindfulness, but if we, uh, if we see it as, uh, essentially important, we see that this is profoundly significant, then we bring we bring moment to moment that quality of uh, open heartedness and attention to the presently arisen feeling that whatever it might be, and so that uh, uh, that uh, open heartedness, that re- recognition of this is the feeling of hatred or the desire for for um, Kind of somebody to, to suffer that we we feel critical of the perpetrators of harm and we, the feeling of I want to see those people punished or 
uh, and those uh, feelings of, of anger and negativity. Uh, again, you're, uh, by allowing that in, by recognizing that, you're not approving it, you're not strengthening it, but you're recognizing this is the, the reaction that's happening in this moment, and it feels this way. And the very act of, uh, of acknowledging, of accepting that that's what's arisen, then uh, there's, a, uh, there's the quality of wisdom. Mindfulness and wisdom is able to recognize this is a state. In a way, it's let go of the object, the, the, that person or those people, that thing that we're worried about or irritated by or uh, angry about and it's the the recognition is here is a state uh, that's arisen here that the mind has let go of the 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 content uh, what the attention's locked onto and is looking and appreciating and knowing the process of experiencing so the result of that there's a, a bit more space in the heart there's a a bit more I say, uh, of a, of a capacity to, to be with what's happening, to attune to it. And out of having that extra space in the heart, there's, there's a, a bit more clarity and, and uh, more of an ability to respond to the situations uh, from a, a place of, of, uh, mindfulness and wisdom, a place of attunement rather than reactivity. So uh, it's uh, it's challenging to, to do that, but uh, if we make the effort to to meet each state as it, as it arises and to know it as it is, then uh, when when we are feeling what we're what's happening, but also that uh, there's less of a quality of being uh, entangled or overwhelmed by the emotions that that we feel. There's a, a processing of them. There. A receiving and a knowing of them, and then that extra quality of spaciousness in the heart makes it easier to respond in a skillful way. With uh, particularly with in a war situation where there's a lot of news, a lot of information every day, there's different things happening, and and even in a monastery where we, you know, we don't have a lot of media contact. Still, you know, your word spreads, and uh, we, people get to see things and hear things, and and information uh, moves through through the community. So we can easily be very uh, strongly affected. Uh, one of the ways of establishing that quality of of attunement and re, and accepting, no, uh, in a radical way. The feelings that are here, and without getting caught up in the in the the details or the 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 I see the the aspects of individual you know, stories or events or, or uh, getting caught up in and identified with particular aspects of it is to use the the uh, the physical sensations the the, the felt sense of an emotional state, so that if, if anger arises or resentment arises, too, uh, and, he, and that's been noticed, and it can be that acknowledgement, oh, this is the feeling of anger, this is the feeling of resentment or anxiety. Yet that's part of it, just uh, just know, knowing what it is and appreciating that. But uh, uh, an extremely helpful tool to use is to feel in the body, where is that grief sitting? With that, you know, I say I'm feeling grief or sadness, I'm feeling helpless. Where in the body is that helpless feeling residing? Uh, feelings of anger or resentment. How does that manifest? Is it a, a quality of heat? Is there a, a, a tension across your shoulders? Uh, is there a weight in the heart? Where, where is it? How does it feel? So... Uh, uh, and I found this again an extraordinarily helpful approach, particularly to intense emotional states, because it's so easy for the the the, the attention to get drawn into the content, what you're sad about, or what, or what you're enraged about, or what you're worried about, the the story that, that's going on. The mind gets wrapped up in it, and we we don't notice what the emotion is because we're we're born into it. We're taken full full hold of it we've uh, we've absorbed into that that, uh, that emotional uh, tone of it but to feel it in the body 
the, the, the sensations of the body are much more simple uh, natural language so when if we're feeling sadness and grief just to, to bring the, the attention to that maybe you feel it like an ache in your heart with, uh, with no comment of whether it should be there or shouldn't be there or when's it going to be over or, or I, don't, I don't want to feel this to the extent possible to just let the attention fully rest upon those, the, the, the feelings, the sensation and just know it as it is uh, that whether it's, it's tense and hot or vibrating or it's heavy and uh, whatever tone it might be wherever it might be felt in the body to, to use, to consciously cultivate the body awareness as uh, a, a reference point, as a foundation for awareness. And then that, uh, again, yeah, there's a, an openness of heart to what's being experienced. The mind isn't suppressing it or avoiding it. There's an attunement to what's being felt, an, att- an attunement to the situation. But the mind is is not getting drawn into creations about it, not it's kind of carried carried away by proliferations and mental uh, mental activity around that. Rather, it's it's attuned to this feeling. It knows this feeling, and then the sensations of the body are a very direct, natural, uncomplicated language. To this is what anger feels like. It's here in my neck or my shoulders. So this is what or the anxiety feels like it's this knot in my stomach, or this is what sadness and grief feels like, it's this ache in the in the chest. It's this way. It's like this. And the 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 degree to which it can just be known with an open heart and fully acknowledged, fully received, with no commentary or no kind of um uh, why am I feeling this? Uh, when's it going to be over? I don't want to be this way. How can I get? How can I get away from this? To to leave as much of that uh, aside and just to know in this moment it's it's this feeling, it's this emotion, it feels this way. Then uh, that uh, again is there's a, a, a profound recognition of this is a mind state. This is a an emotion, a, 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 a sankara, a pattern of feeling that has arisen here, and it's like this. And then, out of that receptivity, then again, there's there's a, a greater spaciousness, and the, the the mind, through knowing, through an, an awakened awareness of those states, there's there's a bit more room around them. There's a bit more spaciousness around them. We can respond to situations in a conversation whether we're having with someone or hearing a piece of information we're not immediately grabbing hold of it and jumping in and having getting lost in opinions or reactions or or uh, uh, agitation around that but we're able to to let that those waves of feeling flow through us and be known and if there's something to be done or said then that's useful then we can say it or do it if there's nothing to be done or said then we can we can leave it alone Also, part of uh, of working with these uh, these situations, uh, and uh, uh, I found over over time these uh, the different um, crises that have uh, sort of moved through our, our world, our society at different times. It's a um, uh, to bring attention to the the process of. Conceptual proliferation, papancha, is uh, is also a major part of this because it's so easy, as uh, I was already saying, how the mind, you know, we hear some news or somebody makes a comment or we, we see an image and, and or we get uh, a message from uh, someone who's in the, in the thick of things in the, uh, in the Ukraine or in, the, uh, in our family and somewhere close by or people that we know and the, the mind immediately gets 
drawn into into this story making factory it gets uh, gets going with a conceptual proliferation and one thought leads to another to another to another to another to another and the mind gets lost in it in its own creations so to uh, to be aware of the process of conceptual proliferation and to see if there's a, a quality of attention, a caring, mindful attention, we can see how that happens and we can use this as an opportunity to train the mind not to get lost in that. It's also interesting if you look at the uh, one of the, the key teachings in the, the suttas about conceptual proliferation, the, uh, uh, in uh, Mahakachana's explanation, and the Buddha uh, confirms this, he says it's, it's on account of conceptual proliferation, papancha. This is what causes people to, to quarrel, to argue, to, to fight with each other. It's through the mind getting lost in its own creations. This is it's why people take up weapons and attack each other, why there are quarrels, why there is conflict in the world. So the very reason for warfare and one of the main contributing causes is uh, people uh, getting lost in their own thoughts, their own opinions, their, their views, uh, buying into them, and then the, the the belief in those opinions, and then and then those opinions, those views, then clashing with others or not not uh, say uh, meshing with the the views and opinions, the concerns, the the needs of others. And then you have a fight, you have an argument, or in, in the current situation, you have a whole war uh, uh, going on that affects the lives of millions and millions of people. So that uh, I feel it's, it's significant that in that in that sutta, that conceptual proliferation isn't just a, an internal matter. It's not just uh, having a lot of chatter in the mind that it would be good if it went uh, if it went a bit more quiet and there was more peace internally it, right there in that, that teaching it points out it's because of uh, the, our minds running on these uh, strings of associative thought and the tendency to believe in those and get lost in those that's why we clash with each other that's why we, we get into arguments both on a national level or on a more local level just within the monastery <laughs> within the the people you share a building with, the people that you, you work together with uh, in, a, in our living situation. This is where conflict, struggle, quarrels and arguments come from, is getting lost in our own mental creations and then uh, then those creations clashing or, or not not harmonizing with the preoccupations and the, the, the um, opinions and, and views of those around us. So... You know, when my world doesn't match your world, and if I uh, if I take if I object to the way you, know, you see the world, then we find ourselves in, in a fight. This is a cause of a conflict. So uh, one of the things that we can do uh, with our, our lives and our minds is to understand how that proliferative uh, process works. And to train our mind not to do that, but, and that has a beneficial effect both for us as individuals, being able to have a, a mind that is is more peaceful and, and calm and and uh, attuned to the present, and also it helps us to attune to get along with other other beings, to be not so reactive, uh, and not to clash, not to to quarrel with uh, other people and uh, with the the world, because. Uh, if we're not so attached or identified with the, the thoughts and feelings that go through our mind, we know them more just as, this is an opinion, this is a thought, this is a point of view, then we, if we can look at these views and opinions uh, with a, a, a greater objectivity, then we can relate to those of other, uh, of other people, other beings, in a similar way. We can not be so reactive, we can be more spacious around the, the views and opinions Others have, and it is much less likely to lead to quarrel and to uh, conflict, to struggle between us. So that uh, in terms of, of our practice, 
then uh, uh, if you're seeing that your mind is getting drawn in a particular pattern, like worrying about a particular uh, group of people in your family, or getting resentful about these different political figures, or uh, uh, the mind locking onto certain issues about how the you know, the uh, you know, refugee situation should be taken care of, or how aid should be given, or how conflict can, the conflict could best be resolved. Uh, or whatever it might be, to to use the formal practice to first of all, yeah, to to know those the emotions that uh, that arise, to know them in the body, to feel them, to uh, acknowledge them just as uh, as physical sensations, and to know the the tone, the quality of that, but also to to uh, watch the proliferative process a conceptual proliferation uh, if you see there's a particular issue that sets you off like your, your family or the, the the political figures who are uh, in, uh, leading the conflict or the the um, the way of of uh, the handling the, the refugee situation or whether it's going to escalate into more uh, widespread and dangerous uh, situ- conflict and uh, more Countries are going to get involved to to see where your mind is going, to where the tracks it chooses to go down, and to use a formal practice to to look at that, so that if you know that you you're you're uh, you're triggered by a particular worry or by a particular aversion, when we you sit down to meditate here in the temple or in your room or in the kuti or uh, on the walking meditation path, to deliberately bring to mind that that area that you get lost in, you get caught up in that, uh, just to not to uh, create more confusion and agitation in the mind, but rather to know, well, that's an area where my mind gets lost. That's a a very well-worn track that my mind likes to go down. Okay, so let's watch that happen. Let's see how that works. And when there's a, a deliberate conscious choice to to explore, to, to look at those particular habits that you get, get drawn into desire or fear or aversion or anxiety, sadness and you know, depression or grief. So you, it may seem uh, unhelpful, but you can uh, consciously use an exercise to, to trigger that emotional reaction. Uh, to bring up a key word, uh, like the thinking of the, the name of a political figure, or uh, uh, the, you know the the refugees, or or, uh, or escalation, and watch what the mind does to know to know. Okay, I've invited this in. I've dropped in that that key word. That, uh, I've uh, uh, let the mind be uh, say going in that particular direction. Let's watch. Let's watch how it goes. Let's watch how that associative string of, of thoughts gets formed, uh, and then because you've done that deliberately, you've, you've consciously seeded that train of thought. Then there's a, a greater sense of of clarity. It's not just risen randomly or because of a conversation or because you weren't really paying attention. You've deliberately invited it in, so you can see how the process. Uh, unfolds, and then uh, after a, a, a minute or two, having seen how the mind gets lost in that, to say, okay, well, let's to follow that back, to replay the, the the strings of thoughts where wherever it has ended up, follow it back, follow it back to the oh, it started off with me thinking the word you know the refugee crisis, or thinking of the word escalation, or thinking of of uh, the terrible sadness, the, the, this uh, aching grief. That's where it began. It just began with that particular point, that particular formation. That's where it began. And then the mind ran with it and got lost in it. So we get familiar with the process of conceptual proliferation. We see how it works. And then through seeing how how that works, and as it starts to launch, and and the mind gets drawn down one of those those tracks, we know it. It's it's a well, it's a well known habit. The, the the by and by seeing the habit in operation, seeing how it functions, then 
we're much more able to to not get drawn into it, not to not to get lost in it. In one of the uh, the, sto- the stories of the uh, the Dhammapada commentary, I think it's a uh, where the um, the Dhammapada verse that goes uh, mean thoughts, trivial thoughts, um, uh, come uh, confusing the mind, uh, uh, and uh, the you know, mind chases after them. I can't remember the precise verse itself. But mean thoughts, trivial thoughts, you know, confusing the mind and getting, letting it get carried away. The, the commentary on that uh, on that on that verse is a tells a story of a of a, a young novice who was given the job of uh, of fanning his uncle who was a mahatera and his uncle was a monk and giving a dhamma talk and these uh, the ceremonial fans are not just ceremonial but that was that was a kind of uh, in ancient times or even pre-electrical times in Thailand <laughs> that was a cooling system and you have a even in the Vinaya you're, you're there's descriptions of how you carry out the fanning. You, one stroke down and then one stroke across. One stroke down and one stroke across the other way to cool down the, the elder and to keep the mosquitoes away. So his his uncle was giving a Dhamma talk and uh, his nephew, the young novice, was given the job of, of fanning his, his uncle, Mahatera. And uh, and it describes how during the, the course of this Dhamma talk the, the novice gets a bit distracted his mind starts to wander and thinking, oh, well, I've been a novice for several years now and I don't really think the monastic life is for me and, you know, once we get to the end of the rains retreat, I think I'll, I'll go back to the lay life and go back to the, the village and, uh, you know, there was that, that uh, girl who was, uh, she said she'd wait for me if I ever come out of the, the robes and so she'll probably be there and that would be really nice to, you know, get together and we can get married and, and then uh, we have a little uh, little house on the edge of the village in our own fields, and you know a few goats, and and uh, uh, oh, but then you know, but she's you know, she's from a different village, so you know, if if she uh, if she gets pregnant, then she'd probably want to go to her home village to have the baby, and how would we manage that? So she's pregnant, and then well, we, we probably have to take the goats with us as well, and so they're really difficult, they really misbehave, and. And so that yeah, you know, so we're going along the road, and we have to be. I, I mean, she she's pregnant, so I'd have to look after the goats and keep them in in check. And so, and they, and then oh, they're they're always going all over the place. They're so disobedient, and they kind of race off the path and drop down in the ditch. And you have to kind of whack them with a stick. And and then suddenly he hears this voice saying, "Hey, hey, what are you doing?" And he comes to, and he realizes he was whacking his his uncle the Mahatera with the fan, mistaking his uncle for the goat. And, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. So that's a, you can find it in the Dhammapada commentary if you're interested. Papancha is not a new thing. <laughs> it's there are ancient times that we can easily get lost in these uh, patterns of, of creation. Uh, but I, I feel that it's particularly when things are very ramped up and emotions are very strong and anxiety can be high and feelings of aversion and fear and uh, and sadness can be very, very strong. It's almost more important to get to know how papancha works and to see that uh, it's a habit of mind and it doesn't have to be followed and just to, to, to see how the mind Gets drawn into particular patterns, and then when you've seen that, having got lost, you know, <laughs> chasing the goats or whatever it might be, that uh, you know, where did that begin? Oh, it began with that thought. It's just that thought. Oh, you know, maybe at the end of the rains, I'll go back to lay life, or you know, maybe the the war will escalate, or how will we look after all these refugees? Um, that way, you, you, you see a picture, you hear some news, someone makes a comment. Uh, you get an email from from someone nearby in the in the in the war zone, and uh, it's not that you are trying to not feel anything. We're not trying to harden our hearts or make ourselves uh, uh, say uh, in, uh, desensitized, but in a mysterious way, the the what we're doing is helping the heart to be more open, more responsive, more attuned to the time, the place, the situation. Because the more our mind is lost in in 
conceptual proliferation uh, and uh, absorbed in that, the less attuned we are to the actual reality. We're lost in our own little self-created world. We, that, that's that's what happens. That's why we get into conflicts. So that for the mind that is letting go of papancha, the nipapancha, free of that conceptual proliferation, that that's uh, it's not a matter of of not and not caring or trying to switch off our feelings or our thoughts altogether, but it's keeping a, a, an open mental space. It's helping the, the heart to be responsive rather than reactive, to be noticing um, and to be aware of uh, the time, the place, the situation, and to be attuned to that. And so, as I said, what, what we find that we, if there's something useful for us to say, we, we say it. If there's nothing useful for us to say, we stay quiet. If there's something we can do, then we do it. If there's nothing we can do, then we leave things alone. So that, uh, um, in that way, what we're, we're doing is to um, say, uh, take the, the painfulness of a situation like this, to, to be acknowledging that, uh, and to uh, to say, be ready to to uh, to know those those painful feelings, but to recognize that uh, we uh, we don't have to uh, 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 say escape from that kind of dukkha. The the, the dukkha that is the uh, the ending of suffering is not never having any physical pain or emotional pain, but rather it's the, the mind freeing itself from creating agitation and complication around uh, the, the, the flow of life. And also in that lack of, uh, of um, proliferation, that nipapancha, one of the things that is part of that is that we're not creating each other, we're not creating fixed opinions or fixed judgments about each other. Because one of the, the causes of conflict in, in the monastery, in the home, in the workplace, or between nations, is that we uh, we can easily demonize each other. The, the other becomes the source of all wrongness and badness, and that's when there are wars, this is easily what happens that one nation will, will demonize another, that all the, those people, well, they're not really people, they're kind of, they're, they're monsters or they're demons or they're, they're, they're bad, bad people, and that they are, uh, a sort of a group perception is cultivated that the other is really bad and wrong, and, and it sort of dehumanizes, we, we, we get drawn into those judgments and perceptions, and may, uh, the, the mind, Believes in uh, in those those judgments, so part of what we can offer and what's beneficial for us as individuals, and is also, I would say, very beneficial for society, is to not get drawn into that demonizing process, blaming the other or saying yeah, it's, it's, all the wrongness is over there. That's all, you know, that lot they're bad, they're evil, they're they're all wrong, but rather to to recognize. When you're getting those kind of signals, or people make those sort of comments, or you, you, it comes across to say, "Well, yeah, the, the uh, I don't condone what those the actions that those people are doing. Uh, the, the, the people are uh, behaving in destructive, harmful ways, but they are people. We're all human beings together, sharing this life. And uh, so that refusal to to dehumanize uh, other other people, but to to continue to recognize the the humanity that we share, and that, uh, that is one of the reasons why in sharing of blessings, we, we share the blessings of our life with those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile. We share the blessings of our life with the highest gods and evil forces, Brahma, Maharaja, Indacha. We share the blessings of our life with the forces of evil. It's not because we want them to be doing more evil, destructive, uh, and hurtful things, but rather we are recognizing that this is another living being. Their actions are reprehensible and harmful, egregious, destructive. So we're not condoning the action, but we're refusing to hate the being. 
as it said in the Dhammapada, yeah, hatred is only ever conquered by love. You know, hatred is never conquered by hatred. More aversion, more hatred is only going to make things worse. So uh, we are in that respect. Uh, I feel one of the things in our, in our, within our own minds, our own hearts, and in our conversations, and what we bring to to the world is a, a refusal to hate, a refusal to 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 demonize and to to condemn the other, uh, but to instead um, uh, recognize. That I, I don't, I might, not, I might not approve or condone that person's actions, but I'm not going to hate them. Uh, that we can be kind to that which is not likable, even that which is destructive. We, uh, we also that doesn't mean that that we're necessarily passive uh, or don't don't take action, don't don't uh, say raise our voices to say that's unskillful that's unwholesome you know the precepts you know panati pata viramani and to take the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living being but that's uh, say we we have our own standards of, of respect for for life um, but we uh, because someone else is is engaged in, in killing and destruction we don't have to hate them on on account of that. We don't. We're not approving of that. We're not saying that it's it's uh, you know okay. But we're recognizing that's unskillful. That's harmful. That's destructive. That brings misery along with it. But uh, we not create and not making that a cause for hatred or for for greater division. So what we're doing in that is we're uh, we're speaking to. That which is noble uh, within the hearts of, of other beings, yeah. that sense of refusal to hate and uh, refusal to create uh, another being as, as as other, as somehow separate, um, in an absolute way, we are are reaching that the, that in them which is uh, which is noble which is which is wise which is skillful it might be buried under many many layers of of opinion and reactivity and and uh, un, unskillful action but it, it's there like the, the, the buddha uh, when he met angulimala who was a mass murderer and bandit uh, he could see that yes this man's behaved in an incredibly destructive harmful ways killed hundreds of people but uh, that that being is not just a destructive action. It's not just unskillfulness. There is other dimensions to that being, and so the Buddha addressed those those qualities that were there in Angulimala, and he Angulimala ended up becoming an arahant. Uh, of course, it doesn't happen with every unskillful uh, being who's you know, be, beings who are. Caught up in unskillful action, but I do feel it's a, an important principle, something both Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumato, the, the teachers I've lived closest to over the years, were, were have been extraordinarily skilled at just not being, um, not judging a person simply by set, uh, a set of behaviours or, or attitudes, but being able to look past that and to see that uh, even if someone's got a you know, really unskillful habits. There, there's a good heart underneath there. There's uh, there's other dimensions of their being to 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 be uh, a, to be considered and to 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 not overlook. And the uh, I feel the more that we can remember our common humanity, uh, the more that we can come from that place of of, of uh, non aversion, non hatred. Then. That's something that we can contribute. That's something that we can, just in the conversations that we have, the people that we're connected with, the communications that we have, that uh, making that clear distinction within our hearts is that I might disapprove of your actions and see that as really unskillful, destructive, and harmful, but I refuse to hate you. I will not make you other. I will not demonize uh, demonize you. And uh, that... Um, in a strange way, when we we are able to to uh, respect our common humanity or our, our relationship with each other as living beings, then 
that gives the other some uh, uh, greater space to not be following their their um, their destructive habits and to you know, if we if we are disapproving and filled with aversion and hatred and fear then if we put that out then others that we meet or we communicate with then they also react with aversion and fear and hatred and you have greater uh, division greater conflict greater separation if uh, instead there's a uh, a a respectfulness, a recognition of our, our commonality as, as living beings, sentient beings. And there's a, a respect for that relatedness. It, uh, even if it might be rejected to some degree, there's, there's something that also recognizes uh, the, uh, the commonality, what we have uh, to, as a shared life together. Um, and that uh, that has its effect in some in some way, shape, or form. I would suggest in my in my own experience. That's that's uh, uh, that's how it works. That if we uh, if we speak to that, if we address that, if we relate to that, then it can help to bring out the the best in others. Again, we're not condoning their actions. We're not ignoring the unskillful actions. But there's a like the Buddha relating to Angulimala. He was prepared to to recognize, yes, this person's behaved in incredibly harmful, destructive, cruel, foolish ways. But that's not all that this being is. There's there's other dimensions to this being, and if those uh, if that's what is is addressed and re- and respected, uh, then that can rise up and that can be uh, what. See, sets a, a, a new direction for that life. Many years ago, I met um, Air Chief Marshal Constantine. I was uh, I had an operation at the RAF Halton Hospital. I had a weird, uh, I had a, a lymph gland in my neck that that died and. and decomposed so I had this weird lump on my neck and the local doctors didn't know what to do with it so they sent me to RAF Halton which is a, where they sent uh, weird cases <laughs> to be treated and uh, th- this um, I-, I was in the hospital for four or five days uh, after the operation and I'd seen this this uh, elderly uh, gentleman w- on the ward and we hadn't talked but uh, I, I'd, I'd had my operation, I was fixed up and was waiting for the Amravati van to come and pick me up. And um, he approached me, he was sitting in the in the lounge just outside the ward, and he said, uh, may I talk to you? And he was a, a great, you know, white-haired elderly man, and I said, yes, of course. And uh, he told me his life story. And uh, uh, he was the second in command of the RAF uh, at the end of his career, the Royal Air Force. During the Second World War, uh, he was in bomber command. He was one of the the highest ranking people in the the bomber squadrons. Uh, And he he described how uh, he he joined the Air Force when he was young because he came from a poor family and he'd wanted to see the world, and the best way to see the world was learn, to learn how to fly. And the only way he could learn how to fly to, for free was to join the Air Force. He said he, he, was, so, uh, he was so clueless about uh, the military side of things that uh, in the 1930s, uh, he, uh, he said to, to his commanding officer, Sir, um, we're, we're a fighter squadron. Uh, who, who are we supposed to be fighting? You know, we're not at war with anybody at the moment, but you know, you know who who are the enemy? Who, you know, the next enemy we're likely to be fighting. And his commanding officer said, "The French, of course. Haven't had a war with them for quite a while." <laughs> so uh, he had no idea of uh, the, the the war that was coming with uh, with with Germany, and uh, so he so came into the whole thing very innocently, very naively. Once the Second World War began, he showed a, a, an ability as a leader, and he got promoted very, very quickly. So he was the, the youngest Air Vice Marshal in the RAF, and uh, he was respons- eventually became responsible for 
for many bombing raids over Germany. And so we were, just, we were sitting together in the hospital um, sort of lounge, and he was just unfolding this whole story of how things had taken shape for him. So from this sort of naive teenager coming into the, the Air Force, he found himself organizing these bombing raids. He said that he organized the, fir the, the first thousand bomber raid over Germany. He was responsible for the raid on Dresden, which is in, you know, caused the destruction of thousands and thousands of lives. And he said, uh, he said that raid on Dresden has got uh, has been heavily criticized you know, over the years as being you know, uh, a uh, yeah, a war crime, or, or um, yeah, that was very blameworthy. He said all they got was a telegram from Number Ten Downing Street that just said Dresden, maximum impact. So that was it. So, uh, uh, and so there was a strange kind of confessional quality that uh, he had in telling me this whole. I'm this little young Buddhist monk. Doesn't know he'd never met before, some sort of religious figure from a religion he didn't know much about. But it was very touching because you could see each step of the way, he was just each each step made sense. But suddenly he is responsible for this destruction of thousands and thousands of lives in terrible bombing raids. But then he he said so after the war finished, uh, the, he was so still so young. He was only thirty five when the when the war ended, and they. Uh, he said they didn't know what to do with me, so they started taking stripes off again. They kind of tend to demote him because he was too high a rank for the age he was. And so he said they didn't know what to do with me, so he said I took a plane and I flew to every single place that I bombed. So it took me two years. He went to every every city, every town in Germany that he'd organized bombing raids for. He said at the end of that time, he said, I made a, a, a vow, a resolution. I would give the rest of my life to making sure this never happens again. And so I tell the story because uh, here's a person who's drawn into a you know, massive amount of, of you know, unskillful action. You know. But you know, each, each step of the way made sense, but then he found himself engaged in this incredible degree of, of harm, destructive activity that responsible for the deaths of uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. But uh, the, the result of that, uh, I'm not saying he was an arahant or a great sort of spiritual being, but, uh, but that, that was his resolution, was that he was going to work for the rest of his life to, to, uh, to the extent he was able to, to, to help uh, prevent uh, any further wars and to do what he could uh, with his career and his life to find uh, peaceful resolutions and to, to give his and to make his his life one committed to uh, the ending of war and to finding ways of resolving conflicts in peaceful ways and uh, at that time which was 1987 he said and this is the longest period of, of peace in Europe that we've had in the, in the history of Europe 40 years of, of non-conflict so he was a uh, to some, obviously, yeah, in the middle of a tragic war now, but um, that was it was really it was a, a, a powerful conversation. It was very uh, had a, a significant impact on me because I could see he was someone who was essentially a good-hearted person who got drawn into extraordinarily unskillful activity, and that was on his mind. He and I think one of the reasons why he wanted to sit down with a a religious figure and to spill it all out to, to describe it all but um, then having recognized how unskillful how destructive his actions were to take the, the, the pain of that the recognition of that unwholesomeness and to use that pain as a, a, a kind of motivation to, to do what could that he was able to do within the sphere of his his life to, uh, as he said, to I want to give my life to making sure this never happens again, and uh, so that um, uh, it, it had a big effect on me because I always tended to be quite uh, sort of uh, 
critical, uh, automatically critical or uh, judgmental or, or make it generalizations about people involved in, in, uh, a, in warlike activity. And I realized I'd forgotten that, uh, that there's people have their stories and people who are involved in these things, they, they have a background and that the, um, I'm not condoning that in any way, shape or form, but it, it was, uh, it made me realize that, that, uh, it's so important to see the humanity of each other and, uh, to, to not judge too quickly. But to remember to relate to that that uh, human quality, that that spiritual dimension, and that the de- the degree to which that can be respected and kept alive and encouraged, and that's what enables people who have been involved in in really egregious and harmful, destructive behaviors, how that can uh, that doesn't have to be something that they are solely defined by but they can they can recognize that uh, given the right conditions and they they can rise up out of that and help to contribute to to the alternative to uh, say solving our disagreements in in peaceful ways and dealing with our differences of opinion and our our, our different perspectives and working with those in a much more uh, humane, skillful, and uh, and peaceful way. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening.